Welcome back, everybody, to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. I am absolutely over the moon about this episode. I am talking Bob White Quail with Dwayne Elmore. Dwayne Elmore is one of the foremost quail biologists in the United States. He's also a lifelong quail hunter. He is an absolute font of information. There is so much we're going to cover in this 90 minutes that you have ahead of you, but I suspect that if you have ever chased Gentleman Bob, you are going to be on the edge of your seats for the entire time. He is a great guest. So good, I'm probably going to have him back. And we go through all kinds of things from hunting to habitat to some of the great questions that involve this king of game birds. Everybody who has hunted Bob White Quail knows that there are lots of them in some places and they've disappeared in others. And we go through that in detail and you will get the straight dope here from Dr. Dwayne Elmore of Oklahoma State University. So stay tuned, hang on, and welcome to the show. Hey, Dwayne, I am super happy to have you on the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast, and we are going to talk about bobwhite quail today, which is arguably the most iconic American upland game bird species. I mean, you could make an argument for others, but I think they call him King Bob for a reason. That's right. It's a very popular and extremely widespread game bird uh, in the eastern part of the United States. So this is a this bird is a focus of your research at Oklahoma State, right? Yeah, it's a big part of what I work on. Um, also, grouse, turkey, you know, all the what we call galliforms, which just basically means chicken-like birds. But bobwhite's probably the one that I focus on the most. How did you get into it? Because it sounds like uh, we talked before we went on the air, and it sounds like you've been—you grew up in Tennessee, and and you've been in and around hunting bobwhites forever, right? Well, I I grew up hunting and fishing. I spent a lot of time outdoors, but unfortunately, I grew up um, a couple decades too late for bobwhite in Tennessee. By the time I was born, they were almost gone. Uh, but you know, I distinctly remember the f- the first time. I hunted them, and it really uh, kind of grabbed my attention. And you know, something I kept thinking about is, and I knew I wanted to go into wildlife. And so, you know, as opportunities kind of popped up for me to work on game birds, the grouse and quail, you know, I really tried to gravitate towards that area. Where did you first hunt them? It was in my home county, uh, Hickman County, which is in Middle Tennessee. Um, on the Highland Rim, just west of Nashville. And historically, that part of the world had a really rich uh, quail hunting culture. In fact, you know, in West Tennessee is where the Ames Plantation is, the, um, you know, the, the national uh, field, field trial. And so that, that region is known for bobwhite. Um, but unfortunately, now there's just hardly any left. And, uh, you know, the one thing that really caught my attention as a, a, a budding and hopeful wildlife biologist when I, you know, when I was in high school, that first time that I went quail hunting, two things stood out. One, the guy that took me was the only quail hunter I knew, which said a lot for how that culture and tradition had been lost. And two, we had to drive 30 minutes to an hour between hunting spots because there was almost no habitat left in that part of the world. And fast forward now, I can go back to those same spots. In fact, I did that last winter. I went to the first place I ever hunted bobwhite, and there's absolutely no habitat left. It's all gone. Hmm. 
We're going to talk about habitat because it's a big deal. And uh, I think everybody who's listening to this who hunts bobwhites has some theory on what's going on with a, with the bobwhites in, in his or her region. Yeah. Um, but so you so you went to college for wildlife management right off the bat. This is something that you knew you wanted to do. I did. I started at the University of Tennessee at Martin in West Tennessee. And then for graduate work, I went to Mississippi State University and eventually Utah State University. Utah State, that seems uh, it's kind of out there. What's, yeah. what's, what, is, uh, what drew you to Utah State? Well, I knew I would learn a lot if I went to a completely different part of the world, different culture, different plant community, different climate. And so I just tried to think of, well, what's the most different place that I can think of in the United States from Tennessee and Mississippi? And Utah was a great place, and I had a great opportunity uh, to go out there and do a project, and so I jumped on it. Yeah, you definitely got it. You'd get into a whole bunch of different birds. I mean, I hunt um, uh, rough grouse and and blue grouse up there quite a bit. Yeah, and you know, I I was already uh, into hunting in a pretty big way, especially waterfowl and turkey at that point. But when I went to Utah, I finally had opportunity for lots of upland opportunities. So you know, rough grouse, dusky grouse, sage grouse. Um, and trucker partridge, of course. So spent a lot of time kind of learning how to train bird dogs and hunt uh, upland game birds in that part of the world. We're going to get into dogs later because I love, mm-hmm. especially with, with bobwhites, you have great debates over which dog is the best. <laughs> yeah. Claw, claw each other's eyes out and all that kind of stuff. Like, no, it's a yeah. fucking no, – you know, Exactly. <laughs> uh, let's start with a little bit of sort of background with, with bobwhites. So – it's my understanding that bobwhites were around in the original 13 colonies. So, I mean, they were a bird that you would have been able to hunt in the 1600s. Yeah. Yeah, they they were really widespread as, as soon as the uh, European colonists arrived. And, you know, it's debatable at what point they were most abundant. Um, probably they became more abundant in some areas as uh colonists arrived and started changing the landscape in some places probably more favorable for bobwhite but they were already well distributed and in some parts of the country very abundant you know in the 15 1600s but we really don't have hardly any uh, document documentation about abundance until later on you know especially in the 17 and then the 1800s uh, you know as firearms uh, more modern uh, sporting firearms became more prevalent and it became, you know, a pretty important form of, uh, of food and, and also recreation. I was going to ask about that. I mean, what's uh, what evidence do we have of Native American hunting of bobwhites? I mean, pretty limited for bobwhite. I mean, if you think about it, it's not a, a energy rich packet of, of food material. Certainly, you know, turkey, deer, bear, elk a lot more resources there available, not just in terms of the meat, but the hide and, you know, all, all of the uh, the byproducts that would come off those animals. So, you know, probably not hugely important uh, for Native Americans. And and obviously, you know, uh, you can trap them, you can shoot them with arrows. But uh, really, when people became uh, the uh, sh- shotguns became more prevalent and, and then people had more time to just have ability to recreate and not just thinking about subsistence all the time. That's when the golden era of kind of bobwhite hunting developed. And that's probably around 1815, 1820. 
And really, the later 1800s in particular, um, you know, post-Civil War is when, especially in the Deep South, the plantations developed. And a lot of that plantation culture was centered around recreation and a lot of, you know, uh, the allure of hunting Bob White and hunting behind pointing dogs. That's when it really started to take off in a big way in, in most of the United States. I've heard that. Thomasville, Georgia, is they they claim to be the epicenter of Bob White hunting in the in in the United States. That all Bob White culture emanates from that, and I, I'm guessing that there's going to be a bunch of people in different parts of the South who will dispute that. But uh-huh. they seem to be super proud of their of their quail tradition, and and I think we need to talk about maybe three different Bob White traditions. There's kind of a the the Southern plantation that that we were just talking about, the Deep South. Mm-hmm. Appalachia from all the way from really the DC area all the way to Oklahoma. You have that kind of a little, it's a very different kind of Bob White quail hunting culture. And then I'm also interested in the, in the Northern regions. I mean, it is called the Northern Bob White for a reason. Right. And you do see them in Iowa and Illinois. And at least historically, you'd see them maybe in, in Ohio and even Pennsylvania. So that, that's gotta be an even, an even different, kind of bob white hunting tradition absolutely and uh, to touch on the name northern bob white you know what some people may not realize is there are many many species of new world quail those are quail that are in uh, the western hemisphere in the americas and the northern bob white is uh, one of the ones that is at the extreme northern limit of the of all those species so there's lots of species in central and south america including other species and subspecies subspecies of bob white so the northern bob white is kind of at the its northern distribution is kind of at the northern end of these new world quails so hence the name Uh, but the the interesting thing about it compared to some of the other quail a lot of the quail species in the americas have quite a bit more limited distribution they might occur you know in, in one portion of mexico maybe along a mountain chain or a few mountain chains but the northern bob white you know, if you consider the mask bobwhite in Arizona as being a subspecies, then we're talking about a bird that occurs from Arizona, New Mexico, so the desert southwest, all the way, you know, essentially into the upper reaches of New England. That is a tremendous uh, diversity of vegetation types, of precipitation and temperature extremes. So it's it's been a quite quite a successful um, species. It's pretty amazing. I mean, when you think about that, I mean, especially now, and, and we can talk about why aren't there quail in the mid-Atlantic states or New England yeah. anymore. Uh, and, and I suspect it comes down to habitat. But you talk about Bob White quail hunting. And I'm, I'm, I always bring up this scene in a Tom Wolfe book called Man in Full, where the main character is a wealthy Atlanta businessman, and, and he only shoots cock Bob Whites on these plantations. Uh. And it's this this incredibly aristocratic thing and then there's the the images of the horse-drawn buggies and and real throwback stuff of like you know black servants in white clothes it's just there's a whole kind of a weird eyebrow raising for a guy like me i mean i'm i was born and raised in new jersey there's this whole thing about it that's just alien to someone like me but i've actually been on one of those hunts in alabama with its tall pines and the and uh, it's burnt underneath and and there were tons and tons of quail and 
I think you and I, before we went on the air, spoke a bit about my probably etiquette faux pas of <laughs> whacking and stacking yeah. bob whites in this guy's plantation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of these places have pretty rigid kind of rules and social social norms. And so all of that gets thrown out the window if you're chasing bobs in Missouri or, or Oklahoma or Nebraska. Yeah. And, you know, it's very – aesthetically pleasing to hunt on those deep southern plantations there's a reason people like to do it still still today it's beautiful these open pines there's actually research that suggests that humans have a preference for that kind of a landscape with a few scattered trees and very open but as beautiful as that is you know i just got back from kansas and hunting bob white on these big open prairies uh with scattered uh, plum thickets Mm-hmm. It's it's a different aesthetic, but it's it's equally beautiful, and there's great quail hunting in both places. I know. I uh, actually the last uh, wild bobwhite I shot was in western Kansas uh, with uh, a guy who was actually on the podcast a couple episodes ago, a guy named Jim Millencipher, who runs the Kansas Governor's Ringneck Classic. And so that's the coolest thing about that part of the world is you can jump chickens, you can jump pheasants, and you can jump bobwhites all in the same hunt. Yeah. And, you know, one question that I get a lot from people, um, especially maybe somebody that <clears throat> hasn't been able to hunt bobwhite in a lot of different places, they'll say, well, you know, why do we still have bobwhite in places like Kansas and Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, kind of on the far western part of their distribution? And there's, and I hear there's quail in Georgia and Florida, which there are lots of them in certain places. But why aren't there bobwhite anywhere in between? What happened to Tennessee and Kentucky and Arkansas and Mississippi and, you know, New Jersey? I mean, we're having to reintroduce bobwhite in New Jersey. Um, So that's a, you know, that's one of a common question that people have is why not in between? What happened to all that part of the world? Is there an answer to it? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of theories, lots of things that can affect bobwhite, but it really is pretty simple habitat has just disappeared from almost the entire country. And I, <clears throat> I go back to Tennessee that I referenced earlier, that even when I was growing up, you know, in the 80s, early 90s, we were having to travel, as I said, 30, 40 minutes or more, just to find tiny little pockets, maybe five acres here <clears throat> or 20 acres here that would support Bob White. And now almost all those places are gone. And it's just changing land use is what it boils down to. So let's stop for a second and tell me what what does bobwhite quail Shangri-La look like? So if I had to sum their habitat requirements up in one phrase, this is it. And this is really important for people to understand and get a mental picture of. They're a shrub obligate. What that means is anywhere you find bobwhite in any kind of abundance, there's going to be a substantial amount of shrub cover. And this is low woody cover. So that can come in a lot of different forms. It can be blackberry thickets. It can be plum thickets. It can be sumac. It can be oak re-sprouts after a clear cut. It can be young pine stands, or it can be blackberries under a mature pine stand. But whatever it is, there's going to be some substantial amount of woody cover on the landscape. And it needs to be low. You know, think knee to shoulder high, somewhere in that range. And generally, we're talking at least 10% c- 
cover of shrubs, but maybe as much as 30%. And so if you have that picture in your mind, I would just ask people that say, we don't have any quail. So the next time you drive across your state or your hunting area, look around and see how much of that kind of landscape exists. And we know historically there was a lot of that in Kentucky and Tennessee, North Carolina, all these places. How do we know that? Well, because that landscape was getting burned a lot by Native Americans at the time of settlement. Where I grew up, uh, the historic fire return interval was somewhere between two and five years between fire in the county I grew up in. So that means in my county, most of the landscape was getting burned two or three times a decade. Some of these places haven't been burned in 100 years. Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise that the plant community has changed. It's reforested. The forest is now mature. There's very little understory. There's no sunlight reaching the forest floor. It's just a deep leaf litter. And, and in other areas, it's just been uh, plowed up and it converted to crops, which can work for quail as long as they have the shrubby component around the crops. But in most places, that's even been lost where now it's farmed ditch to ditch road mm-hmm. to road. And so there's, you know, I, I tell folks all the time when I drive from where I live now, which is Stillwater, Oklahoma, to Nashville, Tennessee, that's about an eight or nine hour drive. When I make that drive, I can count once I leave the state of Oklahoma, I can count on one hand how many fields I go by that I would that I would even think of letting a dog run for quail. I mean, it's just almost non-existent. So that's See, this, is, this seems to be a, a recurring issue in the United States and Canada, probably Mexico too, maybe less so. But the the whole practice of you know hedgerow to hedgerow or road to road farming, you see it in California. This is why we used to be one of the great pheasant states of the United States, but yeah. clean the clean farming has ruined it. And you see this in Iowa. You see it. You know, you just described it in that part of the world. And and I, it, it, I'm at a kind of at a loss as to why you would do that from a farmer's perspective, given the the minimal returns you're going to get on that hundred feet next to the road, which is typically not your best ground. Yeah, uh, and actually, you know, there's research out of Mississippi State that shows that uh, by taking pretty minimal amount of production out of fields. You can actually increase bobwhite substantially, uh, you know, taking these less productive areas that are shaded because of uh, adjacent forest or, um, or or perhaps areas that just aren't as productive soil. And you're having to put a lot of nutrient inputs, taking a weird just dip in your field. Yeah. So just small changes can make a big difference, not just for quail, but for lots of wildlife. So the positive news is, even though we've lo- lost most of the quail habitat, it's been demonstrated time and time again that with pretty small changes, but at big scales, that's what really matters. You've got to do it over a big enough spatial scale, so big big enough area, but you can make small changes over a large area and have a huge impact on quail. So all is not lost. It just takes a collective will from enough landowners or a landowner that has enough land and they can have quail. And, this, you know, there's places in Mississippi that have great quail hunting and, and places in Arkansas that have great quail hunting. But it is not happenstance. It is because those property owners have made a concerted effort to turn the clock back. 
one interesting thing I've seen in the it. So yeah, full disclosure, I tend to hunt all quail west of the Mississippi, and pivots the the squared off. You know how to you know pivots round, and you've got these kind of you know the edges which yeah. the pivot doesn't hit. I've seen people let those go to natural vegetation, and those become little little islands all over the landscape for pheasants and and other upland birds. Yeah, and you know, talk, you probably hunt California quail and mountain quail out all the in, time. Yeah. So one thing that I should mention is I talked about northern bobwhite requiring shrubs, this low-growing woody cover. Um, that's really true for all of our quail. I mean, if you go hunt scaled quail in New Mexico, you hunt them in short, dense mesquite. If you go hunt California quail, I mean, what do you look for? You look manzanita. for woody, woody, yeah, manzanita or woody draws through crop areas. Mountain quail are usually in big clear cuts or burned forest where the forest is regenerating. So all of our quail are tied to this low woody structure. And that's um, that's something really important to look for. Now, do they require other things? Sure. Uh, quail often nest in grass. They eat a lot of forbs, such are things like ragweed and broomweed and croton, sunflower. But the shrub component is typically the thing that is missing and often the reason why you will or will not have bobwhite on the landscape. It's where they hide, really. So, I mean, if you've got none of that and they're just in the grass uh, all the birds can get them from up in the trees or, or in the air and if they and if they don't have their shrubs coyotes or other things can run after them and get them because there's no way to hide yeah and it's and it, beyond just predation it's also thermal cover so when it gets mm. really hot or when it's really cold that's where they go to conserve energy and and so the the shrub component is is critical and you know people get really focused on the the symptom and not the cause. So folks are really focused on predation. Well, you know, there's too much predation on quail. 80% of them die every year. So there's very little carryover and that's true. But in, you know, instead of focusing on, well, why is there so much predation, which is often the lack of cover, you know, that is the easiest way and, and cheapest way to manage predation rather than trying to do, you know, expensive and labor intensive trapping efforts. Which tend to not work. I mean, it's been proven over and over again. You can shoot 10 coyotes and you get 20 back. It's really hard um, to get a benefit from predator control. There have there have been instances where it's been shown to work, but it takes a lot more effort than the average landowner is probably willing to spend. But just allowing shrubs to exist on your land and not spray them all out with herbicide, that's cheap. You know, that's a cheap thing to do, and, and, and anyone can do that. What is the picture looking like on, on our various public land areas? One of the things that really marks bobwhite as a specific species is at least the majority of eastern bobwhite quail hunting is on private ground. So there's not – like you, public land bobwhite quail hunting is typically a west of the Mississippi thing, and, yeah. and at least in my experience. Yeah, and let me briefly mention why that is, and then we'll talk about – the public hunting a little easter there so sure. why is it that oklahoma texas and kansas still has good bobwhite hunting it's primarily because the plant community the, the vegetation because of the climate which is very arid it's dry it's hot cold in the winter hot in the summer the climate doesn't support a forest so if you go to western oklahoma 
it's never going to be an oak forest because it's too dry and it's too hot. And so it the plant community stalls in a shrub community. So without any management activity, you just get quail habitat because of the climate. So as you start moving east, especially when you cross the precip threshold of about 30 to 32 inches, which is about I-35 in Oklahoma, when you hit that precip threshold and you keep driving to the Atlantic coast, or, or the climate will support a forested plant community. So in the areas that aren't farmed and aren't developed for housing, most of it's become a forest. And, and quail aren't a forest bird. Right. They are a shrub bird. So that is a big part of the reason that quail disappeared from the southeastern United States, except where there's active management because of the economic importance or the social importance, places like southern Georgia and northern Florida, parts of the Carolinas. So what does that mean for a public land quail hunter? Because as you said, there aren't a lot of public lands that support quail. Well, what it means is that those WMAs, those public lands, that don't support quail now, it simply is a priority issue. There's not quail on those areas because not enough of the stakeholders have demanded that there be quail on those areas. You could take a large WMA in middle Tennessee where I grew up and just start harvesting a lot of trees and burning it two or three times a year. If you did that over a big enough area, you'd get quail. But unless there's enough stakeholders demanding that, it's easier maybe to manage for something else that doesn't require so much intensive inputs. So there can be better public hunting in the eastern U.S., but quail hunters have to demand it of the state wildlife agencies. One of the things I hear quite a bit is that the turkeys are pushing out the bobwhites, and I wonder if some of the management and habitat issues are part of that. I think, you know, what's happened, it's – it's uh People have seen two things happening at the same time and have linked them together, which is human nature. I mean, we always look for cause and effect. Um, so as people have seen quail decline over the past 30 or 40 years and Turkey have made just this remarkable comeback, mostly because of of uh, trap of wild birds and release into areas and, and then regulated hunting. So we've seen this tremendous upswing in wild turkey that corresponds to the same downward trend of northern bobwhite. A couple things to know about this is that bobwhite were declining way, way before wild turkey restoration started really getting going in the 80s. All right, so we've got records all the way back into the 20s of bobwhite declining in parts of the southeast. So this is not a new thing, um, but they were still pretty abundant, you know, up through the 50s even. So there has been research looking at, at, at turkey food habits and you know a turkey will eat anything they can catch if they can catch a, a, a bobwhite chick they will but there's no evidence that they're uh, that they're killing any substantial number of bobwhite in fact if you look at some of the places that we still have the highest bobwhite numbers places like Texas and Oklahoma we have some of the highest turkey densities of anywhere in the country I mean, just through the roof densities of wild turkey and bobwhite occurring on the same property. So if we just look at this kind of cumulatively and the long-term trends, there's, there's really just not any evidence that wild turkey are causing any kind of quail declines anywhere in their distribution. I can actually, at least from a Western perspective, tell you that some of the best places to hunt 
California quail are where our millions of Rio turkeys are wandering around as well. Yeah. And, you know, part of the reason for that is turkey and quail have some overlapping habitat requirement. Not entirely, because wild turkey do require trees for roosting. But outside of roosting, wild turkey kind of use a similar plant community that quail do. You know, they need that herbaceous, that, uh, you know, a sh- mix of shrubs and grasses and forbs. So if you've got a landscape that's been actively managed with fire or timber harvest, or if it's dry enough that it just stays in a shrub community like Oklahoma and Texas, you're going to have turkey and quail on the same landscape. Hey, everyone. I'd like to take some time to thank Filson, the original Alaska outfitter, for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. As you may know, I am rarely out chasing upland birds without my Filson jacket and tin cloth chaps. You should know that Filson was founded in Seattle, Washington in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating the best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. Right now is Filson's winter sale, and you can save at least 35% on unfailing goods, including classic bags, outerwear, boots, and more. This sale only happens twice a year, so be sure to check it out before the end of January. So I hear about random diseases, too. You, you, know, you talk to somebody like eyeworm or this or that or the other thing, and, and my impression when you hear stories about that is that, well, the local population of bob whites in x or y spot where that disease is happening tend to be are, are probably stressed because of poor habitat or poor food or or a bad bad spring or whatever mm-hmm. is that about right so there are a lot of a lot of diseases that quail can get and uh some of them we've known about for a very long time including eye worms you know we've known about that it's a parasite an ectoparasite that uh gets in the eye as the name suggests and it affects lots of birds. It's not just quail. Many, many species of birds get eye worms, and there's different species of eye worms, some that are more specific to certain species of birds. There's even eye worms that occur in people. And obviously, it can be a, an irritant and cause uh, vision impairment, uh, but it's there's no evidence to date that it's linked to any kind of population declines. Um, now, there are people working on that to try to get a better idea of can it be an, a stressor on birds to the point that it causes uh, increased mortality. But, so there is research ongoing. But I'll say to date, we don't have any evidence that that's the case. And we've known about this disease since at least the 50s. Hmm. So even back when Bob White were crazy abundant everywhere, we had eye worms. In fact, some of the old accounts of, of eye worms in quail, uh, the numbers of eye worms reported in the quail are about the same as what we see today. So there, to date, there's no evidence that that parasite is a problem. But, you know, certainly diseases can create stress on birds. Often these diseases uh, are associated with birds that are in otherwise poor health. Uh, you know, not necessarily these ectoparasites, but internal disease often can be birds that just are generally not fit, that don't have enough nutrition. Um, So, you know, it's a complicated thing, but there's nothing out there that we can say is a smoking gun as far as a predator or a, a, a parasite or a disease. The only thing that every research study that has ever looked at Bob White 
all of these studies can agree on one on two things really that weather is important weather drives bob white populations and habitat if you lose that shrub component you're just not going to have quail no matter what you do one last bit on on habitat biology before we move to hunting is uh have organizations like quail forever and and, and the like what are they actually doing and and I also want to kind of as a caveat to that, because I think the easiest thing, if they are doing a good job, is it is it something that a regular Joe chip in your 35 bucks and help out and do your bit? And you know, the whole aspect of what can non-governmental agencies do and through organizations like QF and and what individual people can do. The individual hunter or just concerned citizen can do a lot for quail. Um, I am. A big proponent of people finding an NGO, some non-governmental organization that they feel drawn to and, and get involved because these groups, as I said earlier, in a lot of parts of the country, what it might what it's going to take to get better habitat on a, at a big enough scale um, is going to be stakeholder groups that have a voice. And so the wildlife agencies, they're. They're just they're tickled to work with these groups of, of people that come up and say, you know, what can we do to help? Uh, where can we assist your mission? How can we partner with you? I mean, wildlife agencies want to be engaged with stakeholders. And a lot of groups like the National Wild Turkey Federation have been extremely successful at organizing turkey hunters around a cause and raising money and focusing on turkey management on public lands. And they've done a great job. And groups like um, Pheasant and Quail Forever also have, and, and, and they're growing. And, you know, more and more quail hunters are starting to get involved and, and letting their voice be heard and, folks, you know, really trying to focus on things that we know matter, like habitat. And in places like, you know, where I grew up in Tennessee, that's what it's going to take. And I'm actually optimistic. I know a lot of people aren't, but I, I do this for a living. I study quail and I know the science. I mean, I've been involved in it and I know that it's it's actually pretty easy to manage quail. Despite what everyone says, it's not hard to grow quail. We can do it. We just have to have the, the collective um, will to do it at big enough scales. And I, I think I think the tide's turning in a lot of places. And I'm, I'm encouraged by what I see. And the NGOs are going to play a major part in that. That's really good to hear. Let's uh, let me let's keep throwing out the uh, the the quail folklore now. So one of the things that you always hear is only shoot one or two birds out of a covey and don't don't hunt that covey again. There's a yeah. there's a lot of ritual involved with with bobwhite hunting that you don't you sort of see in the western quail, but you really see it with bobwhite quail. I mean the yeah. covey shooting is one, and then. Uh, I get the sense, you know, I, I, my experience with hunting quail is much, again, it's more Western focused. And I noticed that most, if not all of the Western quail have kind of a weird stuttered flush where Bob Whites act more like Hungarian partridge and where it's all like, Wah! and they all just kind of go and there might be one, one, one hanger, but that's about it. Yeah, particularly when the covey is tightly grouped together. That you'll see this very synchronous flush. Sometimes when the bobwhite covey is spread out feeding, it'll be more popcorn-like. But but you're right. When the covey is in a central unit, they almost act in unison. Um, there's a lot of you know evolutionary reasons for animals to act that way. I mean, lots of things group up, whether it's musk oxen or 
bob white. So if you're uh, worried about predation, being in a group, there is this safety in numbers that, you know, if a predator comes in your vicinity, this crazy, erratic flushing or fleeing in multiple directions, it's very confusing. It's very distracting. I mean, everybody, right that, it is. <laughs> everybody that shoots quail knows what I'm talking about. It's really hard to pick out a bird. So that's a, there's a survival benefit to being in a group like that. Also, warmth. Uh, the quail uh, at night, they're setting adjacent to each other with their butts together and they're sharing body heat. So instead of all that body heat just being lost to the environment, it's being shared with your neighbor. And that you're was get- a really cool thing I learned about that. With it. So it's basically exactly like what muskox do in the Arctic winter is all the quail kind of form a wagon train, you know, wagon wheel and, and look outside, look for things to, to, to come after them. Right. So they're sharing heat and they're also at an advantage if something uh, attacks the covey at night that it's, you know, it's going to be a little more distracting from them all flushing in different directions. So there's a lot of survival benefits to doing that. So it makes sense then that hunters would say, well, we shouldn't shoot birds below a certain size uh, and eight uh, seems to be the number that most people have gravitated on. But let's just say that not. All coveys are eight birds. I mean, that fluctuates a lot, not only between years, depending on how many quail are on a landscape, but also even uh, it can fluctuate daily. These coveys are dynamic. And I think that's one thing that maybe not everyone appreciates. And until you put radio transmitters on a bird and follow it around a lot, you don't always realize how dynamic these covey groups are. Um, I sure didn't. I, you know, I've always under the impression with especially my mountain quail that, that a covey's a covey's a covey, and if you shoot the, that covey down, you're you know you basically ate your seed corn in that spot. Yeah. So now, if there was only one covey on a property, like if you knew, okay, I'm hunting this property, and there's only one covey there, well, sure, it makes sense to not shoot too many of them. But if you knew, well, there's coveys all over this landscape, they're very connected, and they can move between each other, then it starts to not make as much sense. So, and that's what we see with quail is they do move. So if you went out, let's say you were going to shoot uh, a 10 bird limit of quail in, in, uh, in a state and you go out and you shoot one bird out of 10 coveys or 10 birds out of one covey, does that biologically matter to the quail? Well, it would only matter if you shot out a high percentage of the population on a property. So in other words, if you went to a property and it only had 10 birds and you shot all 10 of them, well, you just, they just, they're gone. You've blinked out. So now you've got to get an immigration from another property. But if you go to a property and there's a thousand quail, so there's, they're very connected. There's, and there's quail across the landscape. It doesn't matter how you shoot them. You can shoot two out of one covey, five out of another, because those coveys are going to regroup and they do that a lot more frequently than most people realize. So what I'm getting at here is not so much how many you shoot out of a covey. It really boils down to how many you shoot out of a population. That's what matters. And how and if, can you as a hunter guesstimate that? So that's tougher. Um, I mean, if you know you're hunting isolated properties, like let's say you're hunting in parts of Kansas where you've got a covey next to a farmstead and, and it might be a mile or two miles down the road before you have another uh, suitable quail habitat, then it starts to matter a little more. Um, 
but if you're hunting a big wildlife management area that's 30,000 acres, the whole thing is quail habitat, it's not going to matter nearly as much. But if you're if you're hunting on your own property and and you're wondering about this, well, how many quail, you know, how many covey do I have? Um, the the best thing to do is to uh, you can do fall covey counts, which basically means you go out in the morning and usually October and at first light you listen and determine how many different coveys you have calling. If you do that over a few mornings, you can generally get a pretty good estimate of the number of coveys on that property. And then if you flush a few of them, average the number of birds that you're flushing, multiply those two together, and you can get a rough approximation. It's not precise, but it's it should be in the ballpark. You get a rough approximation of how many birds you have. And then as far as how many of those can you shoot, most of the research suggests that in a population, you know, if you're shooting certainly under 20%, maybe under 15% of the population, it's going to have minimal to no effect on next year's standing crop. But if you're going out and you're shooting 25, 30, 35% of your total number of birds, there's a good chance it could affect next year's standing crop of quail. So what I do personally on property that we hunt, that we manage, you know, I'm trying to only shoot about 10% of what I think is on that property, assuming that there's going to be some crippling loss that I, I didn't. I didn't account for. Mm-hmm. So I will uh, freely admit, and, and people who follow this podcast know that I do not have a dog. Uh, I hunt so many places and travel so much that I feel it would be unfair to a to for me to have a gun dog because I can't yeah. take them everywhere. Well, let me tell you how I hunt quail without a dog. Okay. I wander around, and a bird flushes, and I shoot one, and I walk immediately to it. And then I pick it up and I go and find another one and then so on and so forth. And, you know, you put in a whole bunch of miles and, uh, you know, always wear like I, like I have like Filson, tin cloth, everything, because uh, at least in the West, the <laughs> the universal law is that all quail shot in the West must immediately find a briar patch and fall <laughs> right into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, I've spent 30 minutes looking for, you know, a down quail and blackberries but it's not super efficient but it works for me and i i don't lose that many birds and isn't it gratifying when you find that bird oh especially in the brambles you see that you see the one feather and like okay yeah i mean they tend to just die right like i don't find a lot of floppies like grouse tend to do that you know they 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 twitch you know in the in the leaf litter so you can see them or at least hear them and get get a bead quail just tend to die and it can be much harder to, to recover them without a dog. Yeah, it's usually a really short little death flutter that they might have. And if you're not just right on top of them immediately after they fall, you're not going to hear it. Um, yeah, and it's so it's so frustrating to lose quail. And whether you have a dog or not, it, it happens. And it just, it just really is uh, disheartening to lose a game. So I, I commend you for your efforts to retrieve those down birds that's that's really important it does prevent me from shooting doubles although although i yeah. did shoot uh, i did shoot a double they uh they flushed out under like a uh a, a already harvested field so when they uh-huh. fell they're like you could see them both right there but yeah that's a rare occurrence it's hard to shoot a double it's uh it's it's a challenge even if you're trying so 
dogs are, is something that, you know, as you said earlier, everybody has a different opinion on. And I try not to get uh, too, too deep into that because I have my bias and everybody has their own bias. And, you know, at least for me, what it boils down to is I started with German short hairs and I'll probably end with German short hairs. I just have an affinity for them because that was my first bird dog. It's a and, big, big bird dog here in California too because of the heat. Yeah. Yeah. And they, you know, they have a lot of good attributes. Although, you know, I was trying to hunt woodcock yesterday and trying to keep a big running German short hair uh, close enough to hunt woodcock effectively. I was wishing I had an English setter. So there are days when I, when I rethink my decision. But, you know, overall, I just, I love them because that's what I started with. And I think See, that's, that's the way it is for a lot of people. See, woodcock, I, I've, I have, I always out hunt people with dogs when I hunt woodcock without a dog just because I, right? I, I cover more ground i kill more birds yeah you know the dog is doing all this ground and like it's oh yeah he's pointing somewhere i have no idea because i've got this beeper thing and it's in your woodcock thicket and it's like i don't know where this dog is and and you hear dee, 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 and the birds fly away plus i have i have like uh this is also sort of non-dog hunter thing i have stage fright like if i'm walking up on a super especially if it's a pretty pointing dog and it's like zing and you know they got that that classic, you know, Berlin Ives kind of painting point. Uh, and they're like, all right, release the dog. And then the bird flies up on this. Miss it. <laughs> absolutely. And if it just comes out of like the corner of my right eye, I'll swing and kill it almost every time. And so it's, it's thinking versus not thinking. So much of wing shooting is just, it's a mental game. And I always shoot better when I'm hunting over somebody else's dog. Cause I'm not worried about, if their dog has style or if their dog is going to flush the bird, I'm not worried. You know, if it's my dog, I'm worried. I've got one eye on that dog the entire time and not focused on the shooting. But if I'm shooting over somebody else's dog, Oh, I look like a champ. You know, I can, I can shoot really well, really <laughs> well when my dog's not in the equation. So let's take breeds away from the dog for a second. So we don't cause fights among the audience. Uh-huh. Um, what are the attributes of a really good, Bob White quail dog. And are they different from uh, the attributes of some other game bird that you're chasing? They are different. And some of them are different. Um, so, which is why I think it's hard to have one breed of dog that does everything perfectly because these game birds are so different. The cover they're found in is different. The, um, the scent they put out, their behavior, whether they run or don't run. So for focus on Bob White, I think, you need a dog that can cover quite a bit of ground. Maybe not as much as like if you were hunting Chucker, but a lot of ground. Well, so, Chucker's the extreme. I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's you, it's it's hard to have a dog that runs big enough if you're hunting Chucker. But for Bob White, generally, we want a pretty big running dog, um, especially in the western part of their distribution. You know, as you get more in patchy types of, of cover, um, maybe you know, parts of Kansas, eastern Kansas, maybe you don't want a dog so big. But I, my personal thought, and I've hunted Bob White from the far west part of their distribution in New Mexico all the way to the Atlantic coast, is I feel like the perfect range for Bob White is about 100 to 200 yards. If you've got a dog that is mostly spending its time 100 to 200 yards from you, that's big enough to cover a lot of ground, but not so big that you're losing track of it um, and it's running off the property that you're hunting. And 
So the next thing that's important in a Bob White dog is that they're staunch, uh, which means they're once they hit the scent, they're going to you know, be really steady there because a lot of times, especially the, pl- the places you hunt Bob White, they might not be detecting the scent from a long ways away. Often chucker hunting, you'll see dogs wind a chucker covey from maybe over 100 yards and then track it. But usually with Bob White, when they hit that scent, the quail are probably in gun range of the dog right mm-hmm. away. And so a dog that will kind of lock down and, and not try to creep too much is pretty important. And then a dog that is a good bird finder, a dead bird finder. So uh, once, you know, as you mentioned, it can be really hard to find these quail. They're small. They're cryptic. They often fall in dense brush. And unless you step on them, you often can't see them. And so a dog that will not only has the ability, but mostly just the desire, because not all dogs want to look for dead birds. Oh, you know, I know. F- they drive me batty. I'm like, why are you here? Yeah, they they <laughs> want to go find brother? another covey. And it's okay if you've got a mix of dog. You know, if you've got one dog that wants to find the covey and another dog that wants to find the single. But if you're trying to wrap all this up in one package, you really need a dog that is going to hunt dead birds and be really persistent about it. So I think those are, you know, probably the three most important traits from my perspective. Classic will be pointing birds, but what about labs and other flushers? Yeah, they can sure do it. A flushing dog, um, I think particularly when you're hunting places where the bobwhite habitat is more concentrated or more predictable. So in other words, if I was going to hunt isolated farmsteads in, um, you know, in Kansas where you could kind of drive and say, oh, there's a woody draw. There's probably going to be covey there or, oh, there's a patch of of uh, shrubs in the corner of that field. Those are places where a flushing dog can really shine. The places where you're probably going to be at a little bit of a disadvantage is like if you're hunting the big piney woods of North Florida or the big open rangelands of West Texas where the quail could be anywhere because the whole place is habitat and Mm. it's hard to really know where they're going to be. So there you just have to cover so much ground and, you know, it just becomes a, a miles game. So you can still have great hunting, but you might not find as many cubbies in that situation with a flushing dog that stays close. But having a flushing dog for singles or to find dead birds, you know, and a lot of those plantations have labs or or cocker spaniels or things like that to to help flush the the birds or to help find uh, dead birds after the pointing dog has found the covey. The cleanup crew Mm-hmm. And that's really effective. Hey, I'd like to take a moment to say that Hunt to Eat is a proud sponsor of this podcast, which makes sense because I own and wear a lot of their shirts, hats, and other gear. When you reach into your drawer to grab a shirt to wear to a barbecue or a conservation event, you always grab the same one, right? Well, you're about to find your new favorite tea. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out their line of hunting and fishing lifestyle hats, hoodies, tees, and more. They're super soft, they're a great fit, and they're designed and printed in Denver, Colorado. Be sure to check out the new line of Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook Apparel and use the promo code HANK10 for 10% off your first order. That's HANK10, H-A-N-K-10, and you get 10% off any Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook merchandise you feel like picking up and wearing to your next event. Thanks. As far as gear, I generally... You wear, you know, because of the, the whole briar thing, I generally will wear 
tin cloth here and there and uh, just a vest because most of my quail hunting has been it, it's super hot. So just a just a webbing kind of a kind of a vest and then good hiking boots and I shoot an, uh, a 20 gauge over and under and I typically will shoot steel sevens at them. Um, but lead eights or lead, lead sevens are also good. I don't know if you go through any anything different. Uh, I, I love uh, it's personal preference, but I like really uh, lightweight, small gauges. I like 28 gauge, uh, mm. no more than a 20 gauge. And not that there's anything wrong with the 12 gauge, but it doesn't take a lot to kill quail. And I, I like a light gun because I'm going to be walking a lot of miles. So a light 28 gauge is nice at the end of the day. And uh, I shoot steel as well. Uh, number seven steel. It's plenty. It's all you need um, to kill uh, a bobwhite. And uh, I guess other than what you mentioned, the thing I think is really, really critical is a blaze orange hat. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, I've hunted a lot of different things in a lot of different places, and almost every close call I've seen happen has been quail hunting. It's very inherently dangerous because you're usually hunting with a group. You're shooting at Q Dick Cheney joke. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're shooting at birds that are flying very low, often through brush in a group. It's confusing and it's distracting, and you need to be able to uh, quickly identify where all the other hunters are. So please wear a blaze orange hat when you're quail hunting. Yeah, I think that's a good advice with really. Almost all upland hunting in general, no matter where you are, because the the blaze on the top of your head helps a lot for what you just mentioned. And especially if you're in deeper stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like woodcock or rough grouse yep. or, uh, you know, or even rabbits. Yep, absolutely. Often the hat's the only thing you see on the mm-hmm. other hunters. They're buried in brush and that might be all you, you've got. And, you know, and when I hunt in groups, we talk a lot, you know, it, it's it's not generally going to scare the quail that much. And, you know, we're, we're keeping communication and, and in thick brush, sometimes it just means you don't have shots. You know, if you don't know if a bird gets up and you don't know where the other hunters are and you can't see them you just don't take the shot, it's not worth it. What about, where's your stance on the, uh, the old Arkansas or skillet shot? Uh, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. The only bird that I feel no guilt about shooting on the ground is a chucker. Uh, after they're they, hateful gray oh, birds, they're they very it. hateful, and yeah, I don't feel bad about shooting one running. Uh, but <laughs> anything else, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to shoot a quail on the ground, and I would never shoot a rough grouse on, on the ground or out of a tree. Uh, and you know, other people have different opinions about that, and I'm not judging. But um, personally, I don't find it satisfying, and I'm out there um, for the, you know, I mean, I like to eat them. But I ultimately I'm doing it because I enjoy it. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I want to walk away from it and, and feel good about how I did it. Not just what I did, but how mm-hmm. I did it. Have so, you ever hunted mountain quail? I have. And they're, you've you waited that long to find a mountain quail that actually flies, eh? You know, I'll tell you a quick story. The first <laughs> mountain quail I ever killed, um, I was so frustrated. I'd hunted for two or three days. I had seen mountain quail. Mm-hmm. I had heard, heard mountain quail. I had not gotten a shot. And I was literally driving to the airport. I was done. 
and I had not shot a mountain quail, and I was really uh, frustrated. I'd worked very hard, hadn't gotten a shot. Driving off the mountain, a covey runs across the road in front of us. Of course they do. And I stopped, parked, grabbed a shotgun, ran down the road, and I could hear them running through the brush off an embankment. And I didn't even think about life or limb. I just jumped off the embankment right in the middle of them. I couldn't see them, <laughs> but it was about shoulder-high brush. It was a, a big wildfire in the forest was regenerating and when i jumped in the middle of them they just panicked and they all flushed up in the air and and i and i killed two and i was so happy and you know i actually finally got a shot and 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 drove off the mountain with two mountain quail so they're tough anybody that's ever hunted them i i think of all the quail that we have in north america they are the hardest to hunt indeed i've never ever shot more than four in one day and the limits i believe the limit's eight or ten uh, the limit's ten actually but good luck getting ten mountain quail. yeah it's that's kind of a, absurd i would think most of the time you know the thing about mountain quail that i always tell people is like imagine hunting a place that's as thick as what you would hunt woodcock or rough grouse in that dense vegetation but on steep slopes like you would hunt chucker in and at least my experience, that's been where you find mountain quail. So it, at 6,500 to 8,500 feet. Yeah, but beautiful country and a beautiful bird, and well worth the effort. So on Bob White's, I get the sense that there is probably not a more ceremonial bird in in American uplands hunting tradition. Yeah, I mean, I probably some of the rough grouse folks would argue that, but uh, that's a fair argument. But, you know, it's just – it's such a big part of the country that has this tradition of hunting bobwhite. I mean, it's it's a – if you look at their distribution, it's just a huge area that they historically occurred in. And, you know, back when there wasn't a lot of big game, when a lot of the, you know, whitetail and wild turkey had mostly been uh, extirpated and, you know, small game was king. And, you know, a lot of people grew up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s hunting things like quail and rabbit so there's that part of it but there's also you know these plantations and the culture of uh of firearms and dogs and horses and mule driven or mule pulled carried uh or wagons you know just all of this kind of ethos that came up around bob white in the southern part of their distribution so it's um the only thing I can kind of compare it to is maybe what you would have with red grouse in Scotland. Mm. You know, there's it's more than just the bird; it's this almost lifestyle that surrounds hunting bobwhite. So I think that makes them special. But I also would say, as special as it is to hunt on those plantations, it's also special just to hunt bobwhite, you know, behind your house. And, um, in, in a little woodlot, and for most of us, that's how we grew up thinking of Bob White, and 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 so that's that's part of it too. So it's uh it's a special bird culturally, very important and worth keeping around. So I will tell you the story. I think I told you before we got on the air about. So I got invited to hunt one of these plantations in Alabama, and you know I'm a I'm a western bird hunter and so we're on the hunt and there's three of us and you know birds are flushing it and i'm just absolutely pounding them like i know that the limit's 10 and i'm like i want to shoot my 10 birds because this is one of the very few situations i think i've ever been in where i had the opportunity 
to actually shoot a limit of 10 birds. Usually, you know, a, a good quail hunting day for me is four or five, maybe. Mm-hmm. So the birds are just flushing like boom, and like doubles. And it's like, yes, I'm just over the moon. Right. And I, after I got about six of them, I just, I started to feel the stink eye <laughs> from my, from my, yeah. my, my compadres. And I got this vague sense that I was, I wasn't supposed to shoot 10, but you told me off the air that that, that was, I was definitely right that I should not have shot 10. <laughs> well, you know, if you come from a place where you maybe didn't have a lot of Bob White or you didn't have a lot of chance to shoot Bob White, I think that's everybody's initial reaction is, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to make hay while the sun shines. You know, I, I've never had this opportunity, but on a lot of those, you know, plantations where they have very well managed quail every year and can move huge numbers every day, then these cultural or social norms start popping up to limit success. And we do that with lots of things. I mean, you think about a deer hunter that has shot lots of great deer and they, over their career, they maybe start to restrict themselves. Okay, I'm now I'm just going to use archery. Okay, now I'm just going to use primitive archery. Now I'm just going to use bows that I made myself. So, you know, it's kind of almost a natural progression that a lot of hunters go through. And a lot of that has popped up in Bob White on these plantations, you know, where it's like, okay, now we're just going to use 28 gauges and we're only going to put two shooters down at a time and we're only going to shoot two birds out of the covey, not because it biologically matters, but because we want to place limitations and we want to keep this, you know, special and not just, um, you know, shooting lots of birds. It's not about shooting the birds. It's about the experience. And so those things happen on those plantations. And, you know, I think for some of us that didn't grow up in that setting, it's a little bit of shock the first time you go. For sure. So let's go on. Let's move on to the actual reason. Well, the main reason why at least I hunt, which is to at the end of the day is to eat the birds. Yep. Uh, it's not the only reason, but it is. It's, a, it's what got me into this pursuit. So I have found that of all the birds, and I believe I have plucked, I have pl- I have plucked every game bird in North America except for the rails. I've not yet plucked the rails because I've not yet shot the rails. Um, I find the quail in general to be the most challenging to to pluck. Uh, I have a trick which works very well, which is to you've shot your your quail for the day and you get them as cool as possible, as fast as possible, you know, so don't stack them up. And if you if it's hot out, you put them in a cooler over the ice, not in the ice and not not wet. Mm-hmm. And then you move them when you get home and you put them in the refrigerator in a paper bag or a plastic bag. If you have children out there, make sure that their heads are facing out at the children's eye height so they freak out when they open the, the refrigerator <laughs> and they're supposed to. <laughs> and, and sit them there for, for two to three days, just holding in the feathers. They're not going to go bad. They're very small. They don't have a lot of thermal inertia to, to keep interior body heat warm. And then I find that on that, so let's say hunting is on a Saturday. If you pluck them after work on Monday or, you know, on Tuesday, the plucking goes infinitely easier because the vast majority of people will try to pluck any upland bird exactly when they shouldn't, which is to say the evening after the hunt or the morning after the hunt when the bird's feathers are still sticking to it like crazy. Yeah. So are these birds, do you gut them before you I do them? not. Because okay. it's nearly impossible to to properly pluck a bird that's been gutted. I see. Okay. 
And that's wow. that trick has served me well for years. And, you know, for those of you who are like carpenters or engineers or like build bridges or are professional wrestlers, um, the chances are you're, you know, if you've got big old giant meat hook hands, it's tricky. You need some you need some finesse to pluck a quail. Um, one piece of advice I have, again, with all upland birds is that there are two kinds of feathers on every gallinaceous or, or chicken like bird. They've got little teeny dark under feathers, which are very easy to pluck, and then they've got the display feathers that that make the bird look like a like it does. They tend to stick harder, and sometimes you have to go feather by feather. But if you think about that and just go ping 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 ping, and not try to grab six feathers at once, you're going to go a long way to not ripping that bird. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to try it. You need to because a a skin on quail, no matter what species it is is a one of the greatest things in the world in the wild game world to eat and do you also leave the skin on even if you were deep frying you oh, especially leave? yeah okay because you know it's the skin underneath the the fried chicken that's the best part absolutely i have not found a ton of flavor difference between the species of quail have you i can't tell the difference you know i haven't i've never had the opportunity to have them all side by side but i've certainly eaten gambles and scaled quail together and i've eaten scaled quail and bobwhite together and I, I couldn't pick them out no i can't tell a difference i think the, the general rule with quail and you tell me if i'm wrong is that they generally are wandering around eating little green things but primarily seeds of various sorts and then occasionally some berries well seeds and and berries or fruit certainly in the fall when we hunt them but mm-hmm. for most of the year insects are the bulk of their diet if insects are available they're always going to gravitate towards insects but when we shoot them in the fall winter insects generally aren't available so what we find in their crop is seeds but from you know like bob white from probably march through october they're primarily eating insects Interesting. I know that when I hunt uh, Mern's quail in Arizona, there's this super pretty little brightly colored beetle that they can't get enough of. They just they mow on that thing forever. And is there like is there a particular kind of insect that you're going to find in bobwhites a lot when you hunt them? <laughs> yeah, they they eat a lot of um, of caterpillar, uh, so like Leptodoptera larvae. So um, you know the larvae of moths and butterflies. That's a important one also grasshoppers very important now some grasshoppers are pretty big and not as uh, attainable for a bobwhite but if they can kill a grasshopper they're going to go for it every time Uh, beetles uh, you find quite a few beetles in their diet but probably the the two most important are the grasshoppers and the caterpillar the grasshoppers are huge for uh, sharpies and prairie chickens too yeah almost every game bird that's just such a critical food resource uh so if you're thinking about growing food for quail we think a lot about things like milo and the seed producing crops but what you really need to be thinking of since the 80 percent of the year they're eating insects is well what do grasshoppers need how can i produce more grasshoppers and that kind of changes the way you think about food resources for quail well okay what do grasshoppers need uh, herbaceous vegetation, which basically means low-growing forbs, things like sunflower. So not only do quail eat the seed of the sunflower, but they eat the grasshopper that eats the sunflower plant. 
So um, croton is an, which is also called dove weed. That's oh, another. Yeah. That's another plant that insects really like. Um, ragweed. So quail eat the seed of ragweed, but there's lots of insects that eat the plant. So a lot of these um, herbaceous, non-woody, uh, broadleaf plants that we we collectively call them weeds. That's a really important food resource, both directly and indirectly for quail. Would you include things like lamb's quarters and pigweed in that? Absolutely. Those are two great plants. Side note, both of them are delicious. Um, the Both of them are effectively a wild spinach. I've served many a plate of those greens alongside fried or, or stewed quail. Have you tried dock as well? Dock is cool. Dock uh, turns an army green when you cook it, but it's oh. nice and sour. So it's a, it's a good you – know, I wouldn't do just dock. It just gets a little uh, muddy, but mm-hmm. Doc in and among the other wild greens is a really good one. Yeah, I think Doc has a, a little almost like mustard flavor, mustard greens. It's a bit between that and sorrel. So it's yeah. very much more like sorrel in my mind where there's a genuine – well, it's oxalic acid. So it's uh-huh. a, it's that sour bit as opposed to the, the, the sharp bit that you'd get in, in wild radish or wild mustard. Mm-hmm. How do you like to cook your quail? You know – I was talking to my wife uh, before we got on this call about quail because she's an excellent cook. And she does some pretty elaborate recipes for certain types of wild game. But we were kind of commenting for whatever reason, and maybe it's just where we grew up in the south. Um, And she grew up in the deep south. She grew up just outside of that plantation country we were talking about. But for whatever reason, when it comes to quail, we keep it really simple. The two ways we typically cook them are deep fried, and especially if you have biscuits and white gravy to go along with them. That's a very traditional southern way of eating quail. And also just kind of skillet, uh, frying them in butter and putting uh, you know, fresh ground black pepper on them afterwards. So pretty simple, really not nothing fancy. There, well, I, I must admit that I uh, – uh, I can't do the white gravy, man. I just can't do oh, it. Really? It just it, it makes me ill. Why is that? It's just gross. It looks like congealed <laughs> baby vomit. Ugh. But it's so good. I, you know, I can do I can do uh, red eye gravy all day long. Yeah, yeah that's good too. Yeah, but I I definitely like I lose my southerner card whenever I'm like, <laughs> oh, I can't do it, dude. Oh, the gravy's I, brown. Period. Oh, oh, I love white gravy. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, buttermilk fried quail, I think, especially especially because if you if you have failed in plucking your bird, buttermilk fried fried quail may be your number one your number one dish because it's just as good skinned with a skinned bird as it is with a. And by the way, everyone out there, eat your legs. Uh, Absolutely. Quail legs are one of the great things in in the in the world and. Even though they tend to run around a lot, I've never had a quail leg that was so tough that it was unpleasant to eat. It's nothing like a pheasant leg. No, they're delicious. They're better than the breast meat. I think so. I think I, I, you know, I've got tons of quail recipes. One, another good southern one is quail and grits. Yep, absolutely. And it's a hard one to beat. I mean, you know, it depends on whether you're in the white grit or the yellow grit crowd. I tend to be in the white grit crowd. Um, but yeah, again, it's just pan pans cooked, usually with bacon fat. Um, and my, you know, you dust it with flour. Whether it's, I tend to the way I prep quail for for cooking typically is either I'm going to roast them whole or barbecue them whole. They're 
whole barbecued quail are really excellent too. With like a South Carolina barbecue sauce, that mustard style. Mm. Okay. So and, are you are you cooking those on an outdoor grill? Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. You, so you either so you can grill quail directly, and I I, I do that a lot too. Or you can barbecue quail. So you keep them way away from the heat and then let them come to temperature over the course of an hour. And then what little connective tissue they have kind of you know breaks down. And it's a much more – it's not crispy, but it's a much more rich and pull-off-the-bone kind of experience. Yeah. Now, you realize that you just went into the barbecue sauce realm, and a lot of people are probably fidgeting right now because you mentioned mustard base instead of tomato base or mayonnaise base. So uh, they can all pick rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will tell you that all the barbecue sauces are my friends, and I, you mentioned the mayonnaise base. That's that Alabama white barbecue. Yeah. Which I It's the last traditional barbecue sauce that I encountered, and – I was appalled by it at first, and I'm like, "What is this? It looks like snot." And <laughs> and finally, I had it with barbecue chicken, and and I liked it. And so I think I'll make an exception for the white meat birds. That yes, yeah. you can use your Alabama white, and and if you don't, if you if you put Alabama white on on like beef brisket. I'm going to come to your house and kick you in the head. Yeah, (laughs) I don't think that would work very well at all. (laughs) I mean, it's cool, though. I mean, the reason why at the very beginning of this podcast that I asked about um, evidence of Native Americans hunting quail is because in the research for my book, Pheasant Quail Cottontail, I always do a lot of anthropological research for the for these books that I do. And what is our what is our human history with this, whatever the animal is? And in the case of quail, there's a lot of evidence for Neolithic peoples in the old world netting not only the old world quail, but Hungarian partridges and chuckers as well, because all yeah. of them will group up like a covey, whereas yeah. like a pheasant won't. Right. And so you find these recipes dating back you know, hundreds of years for this sort of a bird in Greece and in Turkey and in Persia and 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 in other places you know that predate shotguns and some of these recipes are really really amazing um, my favorite and uh, I've got a recipe for it on hunter angler gardener cook is it's basically it's a, a greek soused quail so you grill the quail just until it's barely done and then you pour kind of a hot mixture of either vinegar or lemon juice and herbs and, and onions and things over it and and souse it and it's it'll keep for a couple two three days like that that sounds delicious right and you know the netting is really interesting obviously that's something that you know is not legal in the united states anymore for game birds but uh it's still done in a lot of parts of the world you know you can go on youtube and watch people in pakistan dropping nets over partridge you know well if they do it over chuckers i'm okay with it because they are hateful gray birds they they are very hateful yeah (laughs) i agree i don't think any chucker hunter would disagree with with that so all the if anybody out there is is thinking what are we talking about i'm suspecting you've never hunted actual real chuckers like you've been to a a preserve and hunted the hunted them there which is I, i find that I don't do that. I just, I mean, it is, if that's all what you got, then it's what you got, but it's not the same bird. No, (laughs) it's not. No. So I guess the last thing I want to talk about is 
because we spent a lot of time talking about habitat and I've got just buckets of, of prep and recipes and, and things on hunter, angler, gardener, cook, but you just created a, a, an app actually that people can download on their cell phones. And then when they're wandering around and in, and you, you'll tell me more about this in a second, but when they're wandering around, I guess in, in quail country that if they see a brood, you know, a mom with a bunch of little chicks, you can bring up the app and go, Hey, I just saw, you know, Bob white quail in, in Jones County, Missouri with, I don't know if there's a Jones County, Missouri, but you get my point. Uh, and then there were 16 chicks behind it and then click. And then that goes into your database. So do I have the general idea, right? Yeah. So we did this for a couple reasons. Uh, we did it specifically for the wildlife department in Oklahoma to get more information on recruitment of different game birds. Uh, the other reason we did it is to give hunters and people that are interested in game birds a way to contribute, you know, a way to um, be involved in conservation. So you can download this app either off um, the, your for an iOS device, you know, off from the Apple Store or for Android, um, and it's free. And if you just type in the search box, game bird brood app or game bird brood observation or something like that in Oklahoma State, it should pop up. And uh, once you have it on the phone, you can click which species you saw. You know, since it's Oklahoma based, you're going to see things like scaled quail and prairie chickens on there too. But then you click the, the bird you saw and how many adults, how many young, and it automatically does the date and the time and a GPS location. And uh, as I said, we created it mostly for Oklahoma, but if people in other parts of the country want to use it that's great and if we have enough people using it from other places like i don't know kentucky or someplace like that then uh, we'd be happy to share that code with your state wildlife agency and they could tailor it to be very specific to where you live yeah i mean i think that it has the potential to be really super useful because you know bird counts of ground nesting game birds is not that easy no. And there's lots of people out there, lots of eyes on the ground, hunters that are driving around. And, you know, we thought, well, they're always asking how, how they can be involved and why not give them an app? And uh, and people have really, you know, it's really resonated with folks. They enjoy it. And the thing that that we did to make this useful is it's quick. OK, this doesn't take five minutes of your time, because if you're like me, if you see a, a, a group of quail run across the road, you're busy. You don't have five minutes to stop, but you could probably take 30 seconds. And that's all it takes. It's really quick. There's just a, a few very short questions. You'll be in and out within 30 seconds and you're done. That's pretty cool. Well, I will put a link to that in the show notes. OK. And I really appreciate – this has been really, really good. You're, you're great on the air, and you're full of knowledge, and I might have to have you back for uh, – what would be your – other than Bob's, what's, what would be your next most studied bird? Uh, that would be greater, greater – well, scaled quail or greater prairie chicken. Chickens, okay. Two. Yeah, which is a great game bird. Very difficult to hunt, but that's my favorite bird to hunt in North America. Okay, before I let you go, because we're running out of time, I have noticed this weird phenomenon, and as a biologist, you may know the answer to it. Hmm. I find that when you pluck a prairie chicken and you roast it whole, the meat is pink. 
when you breast out a prairie chicken, or even if you don't breast it out, or you just remove the breast from the, the carcass and cook it separately, it's red like a duck. What's going on? Hmm. That would be a good question for a food scientist. Maybe we should pose that to Alton Brown or somebody. I don't know. Could it, be something, could it be something with the, the fat, the lipids coming out of the uh, out of the skin? This changing the protein structure of the breast meat? It could be that. It could be connection to the bone. I just it's I've noticed this three or four times now where as I'll I'll pick a prairie chicken as I as I mean, dude, I mean you don't kill a lot of prairie chickens. You just no. plucking them. So and they're pretty easy to pluck if you do that three day thing. Yeah. Then the meat is it's pink. It looks like pork shoulder. And if you take it off, it looks like duck. I'm gonna have to do some research. I have no idea why that would be. That's very interesting. It's super weird. If you if you let me know, uh, if you find anything out about it, or if anybody out there has any ideas, let me let us know. Yeah, I'd love to know what's going on. Well, thanks, Dwayne. I really appreciate again that you have having you on the Hunt Guy the Talk podcast, and uh, we need to share the field at some point in the near future. Anytime, I'd lo- love to. And thanks for uh, having me on the show. I've enjoyed it a lot. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and I would like to thank Filson and Hunt to Eat for sponsoring this podcast one more time before we go. If you want to follow me on social media, I am on Facebook in the Hunt Gather Cook Forum. It's a closed group, so tell me that you found the group through the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, and I will let you in. I am also very active on Instagram, where I am also Hunt Gather Cook, and you can always find all my recipes and all the good things that I do, geez, for 13 years now on HuntGatherCook.com. The website is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, and I would love to see you there. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.